So glad that you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Today I want to speak about a man in the Bible who had tremendous influence. Influence not just on his own generation, but influence on generations to follow. He's an obscure guy. I'm not even sure many in this room have even heard his name before. It's Moses. You've heard of, okay, so you've heard of him. We're going to talk about Moses and just see the tremendous influence he had. And what can we glean from the life of Moses that we could apply to our life today? Anyone who reads the Bible recognizes the extraordinary accomplishments that Moses had. But yet Moses, in his life, as we study it, was a paradox. He was used by God as a tremendous miracle worker. His miracles are numerous, but yet he was still just a man and had all of the faults. He had all of the failures that are associated with humanhood. He wasn't perfect, and if we were to list his missteps throughout his life, we probably could fill a page on Wikipedia. He knew what it was like to live a privileged life because he grew up in Pharaoh's palace. And it's in that palace his abilities were drawn out and were developed. He studied with the children of foreign diplomats and dignitaries. Acts chapter 7 verse 22 says this about Moses. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And... What do we know about Moses? He was mighty in two things. He was mighty in words, and he was also mighty in deeds. Moses was well-spoken. He could use words as a sword or as a shield if necessary. But more than being a great orator, he was also mighty in deeds as a man. His skill set, his abilities were mighty. When it came to education, he had the finest tutors and teachers available in the land. And we know from historical documents that a university in Egypt would be comparable to one of the Ivy League schools today. But Moses was a Hebrew. What was Moses doing in an Egyptian's household or Pharaoh's nonetheless? Do you remember Joseph? I preached on him about three weeks ago, and it would make me feel really good if you nodded your head and said, yes, of course I remember Joseph. Well, Joseph, when he was reunited with his brothers during that great famine that struck the world, but Egypt, through the leadership of Joseph, was okay. And they had an abundance of resources, so the world came to Egypt. Well, when he was reunited with his brothers, he had all of his family move to Egypt, all of his brothers and their wives and their children and his father, 70 in all, moved down to Egypt. Now, Joseph was number two in command of all of Egypt, so he had a say of where they could settle. He gave them the best land in all of Egypt, and it was called Goshen. Goshen was very fertile land. It was a beautiful spot, and he allowed his family to settle there. God blessed that small family, and as a matter of fact, it grew to a very large population in just a few generations. It grew so fast, and that population grew so large that the Pharaoh of Egypt felt threatened by them. 
He was afraid that if they continued to grow, they would outnumber the Egyptians themselves and possibly one day take up arms and take over the Egyptians. The Pharaoh feared that, so he enslaved all of the Hebrew children, forced them into slavery to make bricks and to build things. Additionally, out of fear, the Pharaoh went ahead and ordered across all of the land that all firstborn male babies of the Hebrews were to be killed. He was trying to stifle the large growth that they were seeing. One Hebrew woman just gave birth, and her name was Jochebed. And she knew that if they found her baby, he would be killed. So she made a basket, made it of reeds, brought it down to the river, and put it by the river in a very strategic place. She knew that every single day, the daughter of Pharaoh would come down to the river at that spot, and it was her hope that she would see her baby. And it played out just like that. Pharaoh's daughter came to the river like she always did, saw the basket, saw the child in the basket, recognized him as being a Hebrew and knew that daddy ordered that they would all be killed. So to protect that child, she took him as her own and raised him and gave him the name Moses. Moses became the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, or grandchild of Pharaoh. And so Moses was brought up and educated as an Egyptian. He was given all of the comforts of the palace. And as we look through history, it is filled with his accomplishments, so much so, four consecutive books in our Bible go talk about, or they talk about the whole life of Moses. Four books. The last 40 years of his influence are the years that we are most familiar with. When we hear stories about Moses, it's normally in those last 40 years of his life. He delivered the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt, and he shaped them into being a nation or national presence in the world. The story is told of a little boy who rushed home from church and grabbed his daddy by the leg and said, Daddy! You're not going to believe the story I learned about Moses and the Red Sea today. Dad recognized this would not be a good time to rush or to brush his boy off. I better listen. So daddy sat down and said, okay, tell me about it. The boy took center stage in the living room and said, well, daddy, there was this man named Moses and he was really big and he was strong. I said, all right. Yeah, and Moses, he went into Pharaoh and he beat Pharaoh up. Okay, this is going to get good. Yeah. He beat him up. Yeah, and when, while Pharaoh was down, Moses went and got all of the Hebrew slaves and said, get out of here and run towards the sea. So they were running towards the sea, but then all of the Egyptian armies assembled and started chasing them. So Moses told them, run faster. And so they ran faster, but then they got to the Red Sea and they couldn't go anywhere. So Moses got on his walkie-talkie and he called in the Israeli Air Force to bomb all of the Egyptians. And when they were doing that, the Israeli Navy built a pontoon bridge. So all of the Hebrews were able to cross over that bridge to the other side. And then when the Egyptians were on the bridge, they blew it up. And Moses and all the people got free. His dad looked at him and said, is that the way the teacher told the story? He said, well, 
Not exactly, but you would never believe the story she did tell. (laughs) Truth is stranger than fiction many times. And when you read the Bible, were it not for faith, you would just look at that and say, is that really true? Well, the Bible says it. God did it. So we know the answer to that is, yes, he did. God worked in tremendous ways. And the influence of Moses can be seen through his whole life. The life of Moses shaped nations, including America. The pilgrims quoted his stories on their Mayflower as they came over. Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson all proposed that the seal of the United States in 1776 include Moses on it. In 1860, France wanted to pay tribute to the American experience of freedom and gifted America what we know today as the Statue of Liberty. And in that design, the sculptors included two features from Moses, the rays of sun around her head and the tablets in her arms. Both came from the moment Moses descended Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Even one of our modern-day comic superheroes was inspired by Moses. Two Jewish men from Cleveland drew their character's backstory from Moses to create Superman. Notice the parallels. Moses was born into a world where people faced annihilation. Baby Moses is put into a small basket and floated away by his mother. Moses is rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh. Moses is raised in an alien environment where he must conceal his identity. And Moses receives a calling to liberate his people from tyranny. Hitler even banned the comics of Superman in Germany because of its Jewish roots. What can we learn from Moses to increase our influence to who God has around us today? What can we learn? If we were to go through the life of Moses, we would see dozens and dozens of attributes that we could say this, this, and this. But today and this morning, I want to look at three. Two are positive and one is negative. I include the negative one to make us feel better about ourselves that, yeah, Moses was human too. And God can use us too. The first attribute of Moses for us this morning is found where your Bible is open to now. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. And it says, now the man of Moses was very meek. Notice that word, meek. How meek was he? Above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So based on this verse... Moses was meek. How meek was he? So meek, no one was meeker than Moses. And all of the Old Testament, the word meek is only assigned to one person, and it's Moses. We tend to think of meekness as being mousy or being quiet or not having a backbone or someone that's just lacking any opinion at all. They're just so meek. But if Moses is considered by God as being very meek, then Scripture must have a different understanding of that word than someone who is mousy, someone who is quiet, or someone who is spineless. Commentator Matthew Henry describes meekness as a self-control of strength, 
that makes us lambs in our own causes and lions for the cause of Christ. We sometimes flip that. We become lions for our cause and lambs for the cause of Christ. But meekness is such a great thing that when it cuts its strength under control and when we know we are meek, it was when we are very opinionated and strong and forward thinking of the cause of Christ. But when it comes to our own agenda, we take a back seat to that. The Bible word for meek gives the idea of breaking of a powerful stallion where it's a lot of strength. But that strength is now under control, power under restraint. The meek submit their strength to God. And their confidence is not in themselves, but it is in God. It's not being afraid to stand up for someone, but it's having the courage to trust God for justice. We often want justice in our own hands, in our own time, when there is offense. But meekness says, yeah, I could rip them to shreds. Yeah, I could really force this through. But meekness restrains itself and says, God, I trust you to play out your will. You are the almighty judge, and you will seek justice across all your land. That is meekness. The spirit, having a spirit of meekness, unfortunately, is not a one-time event. It's not a matter of, okay, hey, I am meek now. I am good. I'm meek right now. For the rest of my life, I'm going to be meek. It doesn't work that way. It must be developed daily. And that's because it's a continual surrender on our part to the will of God. It's a submitted strength. Well, where does that leave us? It honestly puts us in a position of hope and certainty where we trust God. He's going to make things all right. We trust God. All things are going to work together for good. And so with that, we could trust God that in the end, he's going to make all things right. And that was Moses. Now, can we find a passage where Moses was not meek? Oh, yeah, we can. Why is that? Because he was human. He had failures. But nonetheless, the Bible calls him meek, strength under control. The next attribute we see in Moses is not flattering, but it does provide us comfort because God can use us in spite of our shortcomings. And this next attribute is impatience. How many of you can identify with that? Impatience. Right now you're saying, yeah, hurry up. Come on, I got places to go. Demonstrate impatience in church. I'm gonna, that's why I'm preaching on it right now. I'm seeing impatience. Now, having been trained in all the wisdom of Egypt and having the education that he had, Moses had to feel a sense of intellectual pride when he was around the other Hebrews. He couldn't relate. His upbringing was totally different. They were raised as slaves. Those adults who are working, all they knew was slavery. What did Moses know? an upbringing in the palace with a good education. Their most prominent characteristics as he looked at them would be calloused hands, maybe a bent back, and maybe being backward in some way or not as intellectually polished as he was. He surely cared about these people, but had trouble relating to them and became impatient with them sometimes. Well, in particular, what made Moses impatient we could go to different passages, but today we're going to go to Exodus chapter 5, verse 12. 
God told Moses to do something, and Moses actually did it. God told Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to let all of the slaves go free. You just go in there. You have access to the throne room. He is your adopted grandfather. He will see you. He will listen to you. Go on in and say, let my people go. You know what Moses does? Exactly what God commanded him to do. He went into Pharaoh and said, let all of my people go. They need to be set free. They don't need to be slaves any longer. What was Pharaoh's response to that? He got mad. Moses left the throne room and Pharaoh said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to increase all of their workload as slaves. Exodus chapter 5 verse 10. And the taskmasters of the people went out and their officers. And they spake to the people saying, thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get you straw where you can find it. Yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. Pharaoh said, okay, you want your people to go. This is what I'm going to do. No longer will we provide the materials for them to make the bricks for our buildings. They're going to have to go out and get their own material. Go get your own straw and then bring that in and then make your bricks. Oh, and by the way, all of the work that you have, your productivity cannot diminish one bit. If you were one of those slaves, how would you feel about Moses right now? Thanks a lot, Moses. You did us a real solid there. Appreciate it. They started to complain to Moses because he spoke to Pharaoh. And because of that, life is now made harder for them. And so Moses goes to the Lord. He said, Lord, You told me to go into Pharaoh. I did exactly what you told me to do. And now all these people are mad at me. And it's not fair for them either because their workload increased. Look what Moses says, Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Wow. Look at the accusation Moses is making towards God. You are treating your people like evil. Why is it thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people. And then hear his accusation, part number two. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. God, I went in, told Pharaoh. He made life harder. God, you told me to do this, and you haven't even released the people at all. Moses was vulnerable to wrongdoing like anyone else. And we also can identify with impatience. Impatience is dangerous, though. It attacks our faith. It attacks our hope. It attacks our trust in God. When we become impatient with God because he isn't working his plan according to our timetable, it erodes our trust in him. It erodes the faith that we should have and the bright hope that we have that God is sovereign. He's the ancient of days. It breaks down the things that we hold so dear. Impatience paints a worst case scenario in our minds. And it's actually counterproductive to the very goals we say we want to accomplish in our life. Impatience never produces 
anything good. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word wait? Positive or negative? Negative. I don't want to wait. Do you like being told wait? Hey, just wait. I don't want to wait. No. I want that clerk to be ready for me and waiting so that I can zip on through. Wait, we think of a red light, right? We love red lights. We think of the line at Chick-fil-A. Oh, my word. Although if you go there today, there's no line. (laughs) Traffic, 85, 45. My word, I don't want to wait. When we think of waiting, we think of passivity. Oh, I just have to remain passive in the state for a little bit. But biblical waiting, waiting on God is not a passive activity, but rather it is active dependence. So here's a formula for us. Waiting is active dependence. Dependence on who? On God. It's not just being passive. It's not just being chill. It's just not thinking, okay, God, I'm just going to wait here in a jelly-like state until you move. No, it is an active dependence. So our faith is intact. Our trust is intact. Our hope is intact in God. We can practice waiting by acknowledging God's sovereign control. We don't always see it. We don't see it play out, but we can trust in him. We can refrain from fear and from worry. Continuing to learn and obey God's next steps for our life. Moses was only given that one step. What was it? To go in the Pharaoh, say, let my people go. But when we jump ahead in the Bible, wait a second, there's a bunch of more steps for Moses. He's going to go in. There's those 10 plagues. That's at least 10 more steps he's going to have to take. True, we have the advantage of knowing Moses' entire life. You know what he knew just today? That's all he knew. He didn't know about those next 10 steps because God did not reveal those to him. What did God reveal to him? This is what I want you to do right now. This is your step. And Moses did it. And then God did not behave like he was supposed to. God did not promise the people were not free and now they're mad at him. He said, God, why aren't you working on my timetable? Because God does not work on our timetable. He works on his, and he asks us to be patient and to wait on the Lord, and he promises strength for us as we wait because it is an active dependence on our part. One more attribute we can learn from Moses. This is after he frees the Hebrew slaves, and they are headed to the promised land, and it's his desire to know God. How could Moses be such an influential man Because he had a desire to know God. Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. It says this, And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know, or know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore, Moses says, If I have found grace in thy sight, Show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation is thy people. In this passage, Moses tells the Lord he doesn't want to travel on without seeing God's presence. And so God does something unique with Moses he never did with anyone before. Up on that mountaintop, God says, I can't let you see my face, but I'm going to hide you in the cleft of my rock, and I'm going to pass by. And Moses was allowed to see just the back of God. 
God reveals himself to those who want to know him. What's necessary for that? A genuine heart and a true desire to know God. It takes a passion. With God, there is no halfway. It's either all in or all out. It's either, it's both feet. It's going into the deep end. I have a desire, God, to know you. What I find interesting about Moses, prior to this point of him saying, God, I want to know you more, what did he see God do? He saw God at the burning bush. He saw God work the 10 plagues in Egypt. He saw the parting of the sea. He saw God provide water from a rock. And after seeing all of that, he still has a desire to know God more. If I were to ask you to create a list of all of the ways you have seen God work in your life, I know you could come up with a long list. Just the blessings and the miracles and the way God has shown you favor in so many different ways. And even though we have that long list and we go through that and rehearse it, it still should be a desire in our heart to desire to know God more, to see him continue to work in our life. Knowing God is our supreme need. The Apostle Paul said this, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. When we talk about knowing God, some people know God philosophically. He is a, a concept. Some, God, some people know God informationally, where they could list some information about God. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about knowing more facts and more details about God. We're talking about knowing God in a very personal way, having a passion for him. It's something you have to want. If you aren't pursuing to know God more, you are not coming to the level. You're not fully fulfilling everything God has for you and why you were created. We sometimes hear people say, I want to know the will of God for my life, but they aren't pursuing a personal relationship with God. Don't look for the plan of God without having a relationship with the planner. When you know the planner, the plan will be revealed. Go after the planner. And in conclusion this morning, we know that there's a God. But we must first know God through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ reveals that we cannot know him through our own efforts to be good. Only through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. If salvation was works-based, where I could do enough to tip the scales in my favor, then why did Jesus die on the cross for our sins at all? If it's our own effort, if it's us somehow living up to a biblical standard or what we define in our mind as being good enough or better than our neighbor or our coworker, and we have enough good works, then why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus died on the cross because it's not of our works. No one can boast that they are good enough to earn their way into heaven. Our sin that we're born with separates us from God and we come short of his glory. But Jesus died on the cross for our sin, shed his blood, and rose again on the third day. And he desires 
that everyone come to know him. And so I ask us this morning in this room and even online, do you know him? The apostle John said, he that hath the son hath life, but he that hath not the son hath not life. If you feel like you're living life, but it doesn't really feel adequate, it, doesn't, it feels like there is something more, there is still a void, it's because you don't have the Son of Jesus Christ in your life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And that's why you're feeling that void. Do you know him as your Savior? He loves you. He's willing to forgive you. He's willing to forgive your past. He doesn't care where you were. He just cares where you're going. Have you trusted him? But the biggest problem is it's the start that stops most people. It's that first step of a relationship with Jesus Christ that stops them from knowing all of the blessings of living a Christian life. So if you've never taken that first step to know Jesus Christ, do it today. Don't let that start stop you from knowing him. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.